Hello, everybody. Just a very quick one about Instagram. If you're on it, Meta, the parent company, is reducing the number of political posts visible to users on their feed. This is a real thing, not a hoax. So go to your Instagram profile, tap the three horizontal lines in the top right corner to open the settings tab, scroll down to what you see, click on content preferences, open political content, and turn on don't limit political content. That's an option. Otherwise, you won't see almost anything we post because we are deemed political. Please do that now or you won't even see the posts about our shows, our fun things. So if you want to see Guilty Feminist content and know when we're coming to a place near you, releasing a new podcast, do it now. I'm a feminist, but recently I confessed to Susan McComa, my co-pilot for today, that when a mutual friend who is an attractive female performer was posting all of the terrible unsolicited sexting she gets in her Instagram DMs, really terrible stuff, she gets really... I mean, really graphic stuff. And she publishes it to educate everyone about how it is to be a female, you know, a celebrity, uh, a woman in the public eye, a comedian, mm. a performer. And when I saw this, I confessed to Susan that my first thought was, that is so awful for her. Why do men do it? And my second was, why do men not ever message me inappropriate things? Is it something I'm not putting out there? <laughs> Because I literally, at like three times a year, I'll get something like this. And this is God. a paraphrase of a real message I got last week. With great respect and feminism and consent, I have to tell you I think you're hot. With great respect and feminism and consent. I mean, that is so nice. I mean, it's not arousing, but it is no. It's so lovely. And what a great, what a nice way to do it. And then That's Susie lovely. said. Oh, no, are you going to say what I said? Go uh, on. No, uh, do you, you should say it. No, I can't remember it. But if you've got it, you've got to say it. Susie said... It was nasty. What you said was, yeah, (laughs) I literally get, I just think you're amazing. I love you in this TV show. And if you ever come to Vancouver, my grandmother would love to meet you. Yeah. (laughs) And not. And then you said something nasty. (laughs) Something with WAP? (laughs) No, I think it was something like something... My throat. <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> you do one. 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 We don't want, and I need to put this out there. We don't, we don't want, want that. it. We definitely, really, and I really do mean you this. Don't, we don't do not. Send please don't. Us shit. Please don't, don't send, send us any shit. You send us shit. We're gonna we're gonna expose you, and it's not gonna quite be like the, the comedian that you're talking about because it'll only be like one, and she's got like streams, so it's gonna be shit. Yeah. But um. But, but yeah, no. I'm a feminist, but I've convinced myself that the reason why I've been getting lots of looks when I walk down the street from men, uh, when I wear my mask, is because my eyes alone convey my beauty, power, charisma, sexual prowess, (laughs) when actually I think the real reason why I keep getting looks is because I'm like one of three people wearing a fucking mask. <laughs> yeah. It's so bad in Camden. I honestly feel like 1995 Michael Jackson because I'm the only one and I look so, I feel so embarrassed. I yes. feel like I should have blanket in one hand. Like, do you know what I mean? <laughs> God. I, like, I, did, I just honestly, there was a point where I was walking around. I was like, my eyes are just doing the most 
I was like, wow, I'm just exuding. You know, like people are being a bit IE and I'm not down for that. Like, don't look at me. I'm not just like, my looks aren't just the sum of my parts, but it's my no. eyes. Honestly, I was like, woo. And then I was that, like, though. no, I think it's just because they were like, why is she still wearing like, a mask? Why is she still wearing a mask that's gone out? I'm a feminist, but I applauded this week what I imagine is illegal behavior and started to plot some of my own to put out and make as memes. It's somebody called Alexandra Curie with a K. A man DM'd her an inappropriate picture uh-huh. um, with a message that simply said, a man called Mano, I mean, literally, putting the man into Mano. <laughs> Didn't even I mean, try. <laughs> M-A-N-O. Mano. Um, oh. a, a Mano rights activist. <laughs> he sent her a message that said, hi, my cock, can we talk? Smiley face. And then a picture huh? of his penis. Yeah, I don't know. It didn't really make grammatical sense, but he said, hi, my cock, can we talk? <laughs> And she wrote back to him, auto-reply, we have detected the transmission of unsolicited pornographic images of a potentially illegal nature, code 36489-A in brackets, and your device's IP address has been forwarded to the police department pending an investigation. If you think this is a mistake, reply stop. And he replied, stop, stop. And then, <laughs> and then she posted it and he, did, he deleted his account immediately. He was just like, oh my God, the police are going to come. He deleted his account, like probably threw out his laptop and she was wrong. So she posted it and everyone's like, you're a hero. And she has like taken the internet by storm. She had oh like God. a quarter of a million likes and, and 25,000 retweets like in, you know, no time. Yeah, and she said, all these new followers I've got, you're going to be really disappointed when I go back to posting pictures of my lunch because I don't really do this normally. But I just started planning all these memes that you could send to people like, you know, white supremacists and stuff like that. I was like, this is all illegal. This is hate speech. And I started planning it and thinking, what you're planning is to pose as a government representative. That is dead illegal. What are you doing? But I admire it so much. That's so clever. That's so clever. clever. But just him going, stop, stop, and then deleting it. Because she saw him panic. The stop part was the cleverest because she knew that he would. Yeah, she wanted him, she wanted to see his panic. I'm a feminist, but... During lockdown, I've read, like, no feminist literature or anything. I don't feel like my feminism has, like, gone up, like, considering all the time that we've had, I don't think that my feminism has, like, gone up because I've been so worried about myself and, you know, Mm. the world and our industry and then... I, it's actually, this is a genuine guilt. Like, I don't feel like my feminism has kept going forward the way that I feel that it has done before lockdown. So I feel a bit Babe, sad about that. It's been a really, really tough year. I think that's an incredibly high bar you're giving yourself to clear there. Do you think there's white men sitting around going, what have I done for white men today? <laughs> Nothing. I've just served myself. They're not sitting, they're not asking that question. They're not asking, what did I do for people who were less fortunate than me? They're just not. They're going, look at the high score I got on my game. I don't know what games they have, these young men these days. Probably like, um, uh, what's that one where they go around killing people? The, the, the you know, Fortnite. You know, they're just... Oh, they're, isn't Fortnite like a... No, uh, we could go into this. Definitely I have no killing idea. people on Fortnite. Definitely Are they? killing people on Fortnite. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I've, I swear I've, my little nephew I'm plays huge. Fortnite. Oh, Shit. Yeah, it's a lot of killing people. It's mostly killing Is people. it? Yeah, yeah. A lot They're of all liar. They're all bastards. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm <laughs> sorry. <laughs> you into trouble. He's um, eight. <laughs> uh, yeah, they're just going, look at my high score on Fortnite. And 
Oh, I went for a walk one day. They are yeah. not giving themselves that bar to clear. And I really think, given everything you've needed to process during lockdown as well, and, mm. you know, that Black Lives Matter came to a boiling point, I really yeah. do not think... I think if you haven't read A Room of One's Own as well, or you have been isolated <laughs> literally alone, I think it's all good. I think you're good, babe. I'm a feminist. But when I read recently that John Hamm is now dating the actor Anna Osceola, who was in the last ever episode of Mad Men, playing oh. that hippie girl who was standing at the counter with the red ribbons in her hair that evoked the cocab later. I know too much about Mad Men. You know a lot um, about Mad Men. <laughs> When I, when I read that he was dating her, I thought, well, I guess John Hamm and I have decided we're seeing other people now, <laughs> which we are. He doesn't know we are, but we've both decided that, and that's how I'm framing it. Do you know what? Okay. It's for the best for both of us. It's for the best. You just need to have a break. It was very intense for many years, <laughs> as we all know on the podcast. <laughs> I mean, if me watching Mad Men twice... Mm. in full is us dating then yes it was very intense do you know okay i'm a feminist but somebody said to me we're talking about dating and and they said we could really kind of offhand he said you know what if i found out that you were dating brad pitt i just I, I, i wouldn't be surprised he just said it in a really flippant way yeah and it was honestly the nicest thing anyone's ever said to me I think he, it was the nicest. He didn't know. He just said it in like, oh, do you know what? If I heard that you were dating Brad Pitt, I just wouldn't, I'd just be like, oh yeah, of course she is. In my head, I was like, that is the nicest thing anybody said to me. Well, do you know what? That might be an option because I heard that Brad Pitt, again, I don't even read celebrity news. I'm not, I don't, I'm not re- interested. I'm not really into I, Brad Pitt. Like, really either. not interested, but. I don't get it. I swear to you, I don't read celebrity news ever, but it sounds like I do now because I saw this story about John Hamm. But I just saw that Brad Pitt is dating, I mean, a much younger woman who's in an open relationship. Okay, yeah, cool. So that door may be wide open for the old Wacoma. Listen, 2020. 2020 could dish up anything. Baratunde, do you know Brad Pitt? You look like you might. Do you know Brad Pitt? You're in LA. These questions are coming in hard and fast. I feel <laughs> a bit triggered by them, honestly, and a little overwhelmed and, and under undue pressure. I, no, I, I, don't, I don't think I know Brad Pitt. I think you'd remember if you did. Yeah, I don't, I don't think it's an idea. I think it'd come back. I think that'd come back. Like, I don't think I know Brad Pitt, but I, I may. Yeah. Let me just check my phone in case I've got his number. You'd know. You'd know. You'd, you'd know. know. It's a confusing time. I've been in a lot of yeah. Zooms and like maybe. <laughs> Listen, if you care about black women, as you say that you do, Baritone Day, it's your job. It's your job. I don't even fancy Brad Pitt that much. Okay, cool. No, let me do this work. I just feel like he's I. Let okay. me do feminism for you. Okay, who do you want if you don't want Brad Pitt, who lives in LA? <gasps> anyone. It's anyone. You can't just say anyone. Baratunde can't just be out there. I'm a feminist, she... but my standards have disappeared during right. lockdown. You think of someone you want to date. And I just I want someone to hold push me. Push on Baratunde hard. He lives in Los Angeles. He's all cool. He's sitting there in his cool white t-shirt looking cool. I bet he anything he could be like... Hooking you up with some celebrity of your dreams. I th- you, the way that you talk about like America is it's like the way yes. I spoke about America when I was six. There's some really cool hot people 
Yeah. In America. Let, let, her, let her believe, Susie. Maybe she's Los Angeles and they dream. all know each she's other. The last, she's the last one that believes in America. <laughs> they all know each other. We need this. <laughs> you need my... Yeah, we, we do need that. We do need we that. Need let me not your kill it. You, yeah, you need my, you need my faith. <laughs> From a variety of bedrooms and kitchens via Zoom, The Spontaneity Shop presents The Guilty Feminist with me, Deborah Francis-White, guest co-host Susan McComa, and our very special guest, Baratunde Thurston, talking about citizenship! Yeah. <laughs> this is The Guilty Feminist, the podcast in which we explore our noble goals as 21st century feminists and our hypocrisies and insecurities which undermine them. I'm Deborah Francis-White, with me is Susan McComa, and today we are talking about citizenship mm. hello susan mccoma hi dude <laughs> you have not been in the co-pilot chair for a while and i've been missing you badly for a little while been trying to navigate this bullshit <laughs> i mean it has been 2020 has has it feels like it's had more than its fair share of bullshit feels more. like five years worth of bullshit all in the first half of 2020 mm. do you think that means there'll be no bullshit for the next mm. four years bollocks there's more. <laughs> what do you mean? This shit. The thing is, the, the things that are coming up in 2020 are not new. They're just ripe. They're just spicy. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Nowhere to run. Um, it was all pre-existing stuff. Now this stuff is going to, we've got to fight this shit for uh, forever so that the children of the future have a better ride. That's the point, isn't it? Well, that, it's lucky we're talking about citizenship then. Yeah. Uh, and speaking of citizenship... <laughs> We are not yet at the point to uh, formally introduce our guest, but mm. I want to say who's on the Zoom. We have an incredible writer, actor, comedian, Emmy-nominated host, podcaster and activist who's making two of the best podcasts I've heard this year and mm -hmm. actually I've ever heard in their sensitivity and their intelligence and hope, which I think is something yeah. that is in short supply and pragmatism. I consume a lot of content that is informative and depressing in equal measure. And some of it makes me feel like I have to steel myself to watch it or listen to it. And then I do, and I feel educated and worse. <laughs> and like, I just, uh, you know, and sometimes you just think, oh, I don't think I can do that. I just don't. Can I hold off on watching that show I know I have to watch because I've just, I'm carrying a lot. I have to put some of this down. And this was one of the first things where I went, oh, I feel lighter. I feel more capable and I feel more energized from listening to this. And in fact, I got on a Zoom with a friend of mine this afternoon he made some comment about his Instagram. And I was like, you know what you can do with that? And I just did like mm. a, a mini TED talk. And he was like, oh, this is a lot of energy. And I was like, I'm really sorry, but I've just been listening to Baron Day Thurston and it has had an effect on me. Mm. And it was like, you seem different. I was like, I am different. <laughs> and so uh, we have Baritone Day. He's in the house. Hello, Baritone Day. <laughs> Hello, Deborah. Hello, Guilty Feminist yeah. crew. And I think if I could have chosen a goal for the impact I would have on this world, is that anyone who listens to me delivers a mini TED talk to their friends <laughs> right after. So the hashtag next. mission accomplished and you're welcome. <laughs> 
to the next person. But it was, you know what, it was a TED talk. It was very specific to him. It was very pragmatic. And I was like, you know what you can do with that? He was complaining about something. And I was like, ah, what you don't realize is you have an audience of potential voters that are not going to vote. And this is how you open them up. And this is what you're going to do. And he was like, I just wanted to complain about something. I just complain about it. I I was like, no, no, I am showing you how you you always talk about how you want to change the world. You're always posting all this political stuff. I've seen a way for you to make an actual change. And he was like, oh, I never said I wanted to make an actual change. I said I wanted to complain about politics. I was like, oh, um, I'm afraid. And I feel like he's going to do it as well. I've, I got to him. So yeah. Barton Day, thank you. Your energy and message went forward. And Bumi Thomas is Woo-hoo. back in the house. Hey, Bumi. Hi, Deborah. And just to catch any new listeners up, the first time Bumi was on was on when we did the Royal Albert Hall. And Bumi, you were in the news then because although you were born in Glasgow, mm. under the draconian conservative government, they were trying to deport you to Nigeria where you had spent some of your childhood. And we know a lot of our listeners got behind and uh, wrote to the Home Office. Last time we saw you, you were still here and that was a really good sign. What is the current state of play for those people who wrote in and activated their citizenship? Please tell us the update. Where are you? Well, the update with regards to active citizenship is the fact that my ILR has now been granted. The last time we spoke, we had escalated to judicial review and were sort of going back and forth to the Home Office. Yeah. And since then, my indefinite leave to remain has been granted. I've been back to Scotland. Yeah. Edinburgh, um, which is like a homecoming after like 30 years. Mm. And um, there's been a tremendous shift. So I'm so, 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 so profoundly thankful for everyone who basically used their voice uh, within the framework of the democratic system to weigh in and stand up for me and for the changes that need to apply to the current uh, legislation around the Nationality Act and the consequence of it. So uh, good news. But I mean, this is the thing, right? There are now things that I can do that I couldn't do prior. So if, for example, I wanted to run for a seat as a junior MP, I can now do that. But now that I've got indefinite leave to remain, whereas prior I didn't have the right to do so, I wasn't eligible. So so, there are all these nuanced changes in the scope of my existence and Mm -hmm. how I can be proactive musically or politically. Wonderful yeah. news. So uh, Bumi now has indefinite leave to remain. Uh, a lot of people got behind and campaigned as they, we all rightly should have, frankly, because yeah. Bumi was born Thank in Glasgow. You. I don't know if you know about this Baratunde. Do you know about Windrush? Yes, I do. Okay, so we don't need yeah. to fill you in. And so under the Windrush rush to deport that the conservative government Mm -hmm. had. Bimmy's parents hadn't filled out some kind of form. So although she was born in Glasgow, they were trying to deport her. And uh, you've lived here all your grown up life, Bimmy, isn't that true? Yeah, I've lived here since I was 17. And for the first three and a half years of my life, I was away for 13 years. So, you know, yeah, you're a British wow. citizen and it's just outrageous. Also, you're one of our finest jazz singers and what a loss of talent and humanity it would be if you were to leave our shores without the right to re-enter. So we are filled with gratitude and uh, love and hope. And you give us hope that if we do demand better from our leaders, that they will very occasionally deliver better. (laughs) (laughs) What a bar. What a bar. (laughs) When they feel like uh, it. (laughs) But Guilty Feminist listeners who did write in and pressure your MPs and pressure the Home Office. 
it works. It works. And that's what we're talking about today. Uh, you know, the MPs that I know personally always say you have to remember people want to get voted back in. If enough people go, this is really important to us. Mm. They'll be like, eh, it's not worth losing power over. Yeah. Um, and so you have to show them that you will resist and you will be uh, resilient in that resistance. So, Bumi, thank you for coming and doing our music tonight. We're so excited to hear from you. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. And for keeping on inviting me back. It's so beautiful. Thank you. Oh, it's only a joy. So, Susan McComer, yes. we're talking about uh, Citizenship Day because Baritone Day's podcast is called How to Citizen. Mm-hmm. It's about us taking personal ownership over power and not seeing power as just something that a very few rarefied people have yeah. and that our responsibility starts and ends with uh, voting once every four years yeah. and voting at local elections and going, oh, we devolve power to you now. Oh, we lost too bad. Mm-hmm. Or now we just have to put up with this. Or, oh, we won. Mm, now we hope that you do right by us. Mm-hmm. Laurie Penny, uh, who's oh, a yeah. feminist, she said something brilliant on Twitter the other day. She said, remember... Whoever you vote in, you're voting in your opponent. Yeah. You're voting in your enemy, basically. Who do you want to go to war with for the next four years? Mm -hmm. Do you want to go to war with Biden or do you want to go to war with Trump? Because you're going to war with someone because nobody's going to do it the way you want them to do it. Yeah. And I was like, that's brilliant. That's how we have to think about it. People, I can't stand by everything Biden's ever said or done. What about that time? (laughs) It's like, well, you don't have to. I made my first trip to LA, to California in... 2000 and that year of um, the election. And I remember I went to <laughs> that year. That year, went, the year that cannot be mentioned. Is yeah, it the, is it, is that your Voldemort it. year? Yeah. And 20, 2000, and, 2000 and Voldemort. Yeah. And, and 2020 is close behind. Um, and I remember I went to San Francisco <laughs> with some mates and I thought, oh, great. I'm going to go to the Castro, hang out. It's going to be really cool. And I was having loads of conversations about like, you know, what do you think is going to happen with the election? And it dawned on me in San Francisco, everything that I've known about the history of San Francisco dawned on me there, of all places. I was like, Trump is going to win. <gasps> yeah. You knew. There. I remember me, my friend Zach, my friend Seda, all three of us, we, because we were engaging in a lot of conversations. And when people would hear our accents, they would ask us, you know, what's your opinion on what's going on here? And the reason why we came to that conclusion was how much hate there was for Hillary. How much she isn't right. She there's something about her. This there was just so much hate for her that I was like, he's gonna get him. And so it was weird then going to LA where I was going for work actory stuff and you know going to these big studios. I had like two days of meetings and I was talking to people like, but genuinely scared, just going, oh, so what do you think? And everybody was like, oh, you know, it's gonna be close, too close, but you know, Hillary's gonna win. And I just knew from my experience, I was like, no, because what I think we have a real problem with is we're looking for a hero. We're we're looking for leaders that are completely, you know, without any fault or completely infallible. They don't exist. And I feel that, you know, as a black woman, I understand making those allowances. It's not necessarily voting for a lesser evil. It's about going, okay. This job, this working environment isn't everything that I dreamed of because of X, Y and Z. Okay, how do I navigate it? You know, whether that's a good skill or a skill that just adds to my latent trauma, I don't know. (laughs) But like, there's just something about 
that I found quite difficult speaking to a lot of my super left wing friends, particularly in the UK, our 2015 election. Loads of people going, I'm going to vote for the Green Party. I was like, but the Green Party are not going to win. It doesn't matter whether you think that their principles are really cool. You're just doing it so that you can tell your friends that you voted for the Green Party. That's useless. You've got to make some compromise. And that sort of thinking didn't exist. And so it was like watching this slow motion car crash as we watched the American elections where I was like, yeah, I think a lot of people are expecting leaders to tick every single box and they don't. And it's not that I think I'm particularly centrist. It's just understanding that nobody is going to reflect exactly my values, even another black woman. Like that's just never going to happen. And so this kind of militant, you're right, you're wrong. You've said this once. I'm like, we don't actually have time. I'm not waiting for people's activism to be perfect. We don't have time. As long as you're willing to learn as you go, in the same way that I have to, particularly in, you know, issues of gender, that's something that's, you know, as a cis woman, haven't really had to think about up until, you know, a few years ago. And as long as you're willing to learn, let's just do it. I'm the same. And listen, you know, I've certainly had people, guests on the podcast and people I know and friends who say we have to dismantle capitalism, voting for Mm. anybody's not going to work, which I get. I absolutely get. But I feel like while we're dismantling capitalism, until the glorious revolution happens. I mean, at the moment, there are days when I feel like all I can do is try and get a slightly better deck chair for a a vulnerable person on the Titanic. I'm like, okay, we're all going down, but these deck chairs are all sat in by very, very fancy people. Could she sit down, do you think? Uh, And uh, I am aware maybe I'm shifting them around, but at least as we sink, you know, I I, I feel I have to do something. And I'm I'm absolutely down to dismantle capitalism. And even as I say that, I am aware of the hypocrisy inside of me that does go, what does that mean for me? I know oh, that I, I know, I know there's a front. piece of me that goes, I'm a performer, I make my own living. Oh, what would that completely. Look like? But my better self goes, it would look somewhat worse for me for a short period of time and a lot better for a lot of other people. Exactly. And if I were part of the generation that got to dismantle capitalism, I'd go for it. Yeah. But of course, there's a little part of me that goes, am I safe? And if I don't admit that, no one else can admit that. Do you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. I don't want to be that person that goes, I just get up every morning and do what I can to dismantle capitalism. I don't. I don't, actually. I really continue <laughs> not to do that. <laughs> every single day, I don't, you know, I don't sell my flat and go to Greece and work in a refugee camp. But no. I do chunky, my chunky best daily while chunky balancing. Best. My chunky best. You know, I've. My best, I used to give do slivers. Do my best. I used to do like my best in slivers and I'm trying to do my chunky best now. Like, I love uh, it. You know. That but, should be a t-shirt. I'm doing, doing my, my chunky, chunky best. <laughs> to dismantle capitalism. Yeah. I'm doing, but I, I'm not really dismantling capitalism. And what I'm saying is in the meantime. Sorry, that was too good it's to It's a good up. goal. It's a good goal. But in the meantime, please, can we argue with... You know, Biden and Harris for the next four years rather than Trump and Pence, because Laurie Penny's point is the best one I've heard on this. It's your your voting in your enemy, not your best mate. You Mm -hmm. don't you don't need to want to have a beer with them. No, you don't need to. You can hate them. That's this is another thing. Why? Oh, I just don't. When you hear people go, I just don't think they're really relatable. I was like, none of them have ever been relatable to me. Ever. I don't want to have a drink with none of them. Like, it's just that idea of kind of the personality politics of it. I just, Mm -hmm. 
I've always just been like, I don't know why that's a massive component. Can I just ask, this is a bit of an I'm a feminist butt note here. Oh, I'm not questioning your wider point, <laughs> but I am going to say, I'm going to push back a little bit and say, oh, I know Obama's foreign policy was atrocious. However, when he and Michelle were first elected, if they'd invited you around for a beer, oh. surely you it, would have well, had... Yeah, like, yeah. I feel they were very... Well, I'll be very honest with you. The only reason why I would have gone around is because they're black. Like I would have been like, oh, so at least when I go around to have the beard, there will be no racism. That's quite nice. <laughs> but that's, oh, that's something I don't need to worry about tonight. I'll go for they're, a drink. They were, I thought they were very cool and attractive and relatable. When Michelle, when I saw, an, I had an intimate evening with Michelle Obama. That's what it was called. It was at the O2. It was at a stadium. And it was genuinely called an intimate oh, evening with Michelle Obama. To the o- I thought you said you had an intimate, like I was about it's to It's what it was called. It was called an intimate evening with Michelle Obama and it was at the O2. I'm not making that up. So the um, O2 Baritone Deck, do you know the O2 arena? I assume it's some large stadium or arena where Big. people go wild and pour beer upon each other's heads in celebration of a sport ball team. Yeah. Or concerts. Yeah. yeah. It's more where it's like where Lady Gaga plays or Lizzo. So you and and fifteen thousand of of your closest <laughs> were It was exactly that. It was twenty thousand yeah. women having an intimate uh, evening with Michelle Obama and it was called an intimate evening. And so and did you feel like she saw you and connected with you? Um uh I, well, I got to speak at a gig she did at a school. So we were on the same bill and I did make eye contact with her, but her people stopped me. Like, I mean, not that I rushed. Did they they did people didn't go and be tackled me down because I didn't Wait, attempt to approach. what kind of eye contact? Did you make threatening eye contact? <laughs> <laughs> no. Secret Service just knew. Like, that's that weird eye contact. <laughs> Shut it down. Shut it down. Go, 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 go. Just knocked you down. <laughs> like we got another one. Where did I? We've got a, We've got a Michelle maniac. Um, no, I was told do not approach. So I knew. I already knew I wasn't going to approach. That was not. That was not on the cards. So it. It wasn't. It wasn't that I was tackled. It was that I knew. But I did make eye contact with her. Um, so I already felt we had an intimate moment and we would obviously end up being best friends. But one thing that she said, which I absolutely loved, was in terms of this relatability season. Yeah. She said when she went from being like a regular sort of basically a Chicago mum to going into the White House, she said all of the world leaders they met and the cele- you know sort of the, the heads of state and stuff, she said they were all really weird and eccentric. They had all these eccentric things about them that they couldn't eat or the way you mm. could look at, you know, just like weird. They were mm. weird. She said everyone's weird because they were in this bubble. And she said, I assume now that Barack and I are weird. I do not know how we are weird, but I am guessing we must be because <laughs> are we the only ones not weird mm. after being in this bubble for like eight years in the White House? She said, obviously, we're eccentric. Obviously, we're weird. We don't know how. We try and find out. No one will tell us. So no we're just stuck with being weird. And I'm like, that is brilliant. That's, that is a level of self-awareness that, you know. No one that, will tell us. Yeah, but that in itself makes you accessible, doesn't it's it? It's really funny. If I ever get so successful, Susie, yeah. that I'm eccentric, will yeah. you tell me? No. <laughs> I need you to promise nah, you're going to tell nah, me. Nah, 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 nah. I've got to still be your friend, in it? So I'll be like, you're fine. What if you're more successful than me? I I think we need to make a pact. Will you tell me if I'm weird? Yeah, 
We need to make a success. Would you? An eccentricity. I think, do you know what? If you were to tell me that I'm weird, I'd be like, oh, cool. Like, I don't think I'd, I'd think I'd embrace that. Fair enough. Fair enough. Yes, it's true. Why are we trying to be conventional? Please welcome to the mic, Susie McCormack. It's me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I am actually recording from the beautiful Standard Hotel in London. I got given... I know, right? I got given a night here. I'm in a temporary flat before I move into my my forever home. And it's so noisy. Any kind of recording that I do there, I'm like, no. So I was like, hmm, uh, I'm a feminist, but um, screw equality. I am going to live it up at the standard. Um, So like Debs, when you said, okay, we're going to talk about citizenship and what that is, it really shocked me how upset it made me just thinking about citizenship and what it means like for instance I didn't have a passport up until the age of 13 and I had applied and got accepted on this um, CBBC talent show where they were looking for young kids to travel to the Malaysian jungle it was like a conservation slash reality TV show for CBC. And we would go there and we would build these feeding platforms for little orangutans um, to be reintroduced to the world. So they're like these big platforms that they climb these ropes and it goes deeper and deeper into the jungle until they decide they don't want to come back. And so the process of getting my passport had to sort of begin. And we didn't have much time. We had about five weeks. And so I ended up having to travel on a Nigerian passport because my parents thought, well, she's born in the UK. So we'll just Mm -hmm. apply for a British passport. BBC will pay for it. Great. Um, And then we found out that I had to be neutralised. Naturalised. Naturalised. Naturalised, not neutralised. That's definitely not the same thing. Naturalised. And I mean, it wouldn't pe- surprise <laughs> me if the Home Office had tried to neutralise yes, you. Neutral- it sounds like something that had happened to James Bond. <laughs> yes, it was. We have to neutralise the threat. <laughs> I mean, yeah. So we had to, all us kids had to apply for the certificate of naturalisation before we could then get our passport. And I remember, oh, you know, it, it all happened, but my parents were really shocked. They were like, you know, you were born here. It makes absolutely no sense that there's this one other hurdle. I remember turning up at like, we had to stop over at Dubai airport and having to hand over my passport. And it took that bit longer for me to get through mm. than everybody else. And I felt that difference. And I remember yeah. we, I had like one of our expedition leaders, Emma, she would sort of hold me as I would wait and they would check and double check and triple check my passport because she knew it made me feel a bit weird that I had to wait a little bit behind. There was always some kind of issue, but I was traveling with loads of white people, so it was fine. Mm. Um, so that was kind of the first time, you know, traveling internationally. I was like, gosh, that's that's a thing. And then, you know, like anybody else who's second generation, there's always this kind of dancing balance of being born here and being a Brit, but then also the very cultural expectations of you from your parents, my parents being Nigerian. But I'd always seen myself as Nigerian, British Nigerian. It was both and equal. That was until I went to Nigeria. Ah. <laughs> mm-hmm. And it's I went to Nigeria. Yep. So I went to Nigeria when I was for the first time when I was uh, twenty-four, 
And then I went again recently in 2018. And obviously 2018 is very different to 2012 when I first went. And, you know, we had Brexit and I was already kind of thinking about, oh, you know, if the UK becomes progressively more racist, where else in the world could I live? And I always thought Nigeria would just always be somewhere that I could live. And then this trip, I was doing this film there and it was very difficult. The film was all in the Yoruba language. My family don't speak Yoruba. And so they expected me to learn Yoruba on the spot. That's not going to happen. It's tonal. Come on. (laughs) And so I felt very ostracized from all of the cast, all of the crew. And it just made me realize I don't know where I belong, actually. And that Mm. sounds like a kind of flimsy, oh, you know, just it absolutely crushed me Mm. thinking about where actually where do I belong? Because this place, this like far away motherland was always going to be home for me. And then I was there and even telling people in the middle of Lagos where I'm from and them kind of frowning and it not being quite Nigerian enough or central enough or it made me go, God, so like within Nigerian culture, I'm something else, I'm other. And that depressed me for a really, really long time, a really, really long time. But one time when my citizenship was <laughs> was questioned was when we went to Calais. I think that was in 2018. We went to Calais and we were at the info bus. Uh, it was a bus where you could, um, the refugees there could use the plugs to charge their phones or, you know, any kind of like um, technology that they needed to help with their displacement. And I remember standing there and I was the only volunteer of colour. And I had a few of the lads come up to me and they said, where are you from? And I all of a sudden felt like I was in the back of an Uber. They were <laughs> they were Eritrean refugees, weren't they? Yeah, er- Eritrean refugees. Yeah. Yes, they were. Where are you from? And where are you from? And I was like, oh, uh, I'm from the UK. Where are you really from? <laughs> I was like, wow. Back into an Uber in Camden. And, and I said, oh, Nigeria. And they all went, ooh, bad place. <laughs> <laughs> Tough place. Tough place. <laughs> Which made me laugh. That was the only time where I appreciated my citizenship being questioned. They took the piss. The the Eritrean refugees who had fled for fear were like, yikes, at least we're not from Nigeria. Yeah. Uh, But I remember them loving it. And I remember you talking about the, the, uh, I remember you coming back and doing some campaigning to get more black and brown volunteers out to Calais and saying it makes such a difference to black people and brown people when black and brown people are there volunteering yeah. and handing out food and, and yeah. donated clothes because otherwise there's this if it's only white people it's like this noblesse oblige oh here come yeah. the white saviors and how yeah. differently they related to you it, it, it just stops it being this hierarchical thing but then also at the same time it is you know I look at them and I looked at them and they look like boys that I went to school with like mm-hmm. it feels so close it doesn't feel other. It couldn't be me. And that was also incredibly upsetting was that I, I you know, I, I looked at them and thought, I don't understand why people can't engage with your plight. That was really upsetting. But more than my upset, it matters, I think, that we go out there and, and do what we can just so that it doesn't feel white saviory. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, we're not saying we want to, you know, a lot of times white people because of colonization and the history of the world are in a position to go yes. out and volunteer for six months because their parents have, you know, mm-hmm. wealth. Um, so, you know, and there are plenty of volunteers out there whose parents are not wealthy. I'm not saying that's the case all the time. And also there's already a burden on black and brown women to, you know, just live in the world, much less now they're having to volunteer and stuff. But I think your point was a really valid one. I remember you feeling it very deeply at the time and talking about it, but also how much mm-hmm. fun those was- guys had with you, you know, and how yeah. joyful that made their day and I remember it started raining and I was just standing in the rain and then one of them put, I think, a brolly over my head and he was like, your hair, your hair. I was just like, thanks. (laughs) I was trying to really like, I was really trying to just ignore it, but he was like, your hair. I was like, got it, dude. Thank you. You get it. You get it. Isn't it? Yeah. The thing that an Eritrean refugee will understand that part of you more than Mm. a white man raised or woman raised right next to you in the same street in London. Mm -hmm. Hello, Guilty Feminist. This is Deborah. Two weeks ago, we welcomed three amazing yoga and wellness teachers onto the podcast, and we've now launched our series of online workshops with them and shortly some others as well. The first workshop will be Mindfulness and Movement, with Dr. Stacey C.C. Graham. It's on Wednesday the 16th of September, 5pm to 6pm UK time, and it will be delivered over Zoom. And we'll be adding more classes over the next few weeks. Classes are offered on a sliding pay scale in an effort to make them more financially accessible, while still ensuring teachers are paid appropriately for their time. To book your place, go to guiltyfeminist.com slash be hyphen well, or look for the link in our show notes. You can also buy my book, The Guilty Feminist, buy our merch from our merch store and support us on Patreon. Thanks so much for all of our supporters. You've really kept us going while we've been unable to record live shows in theatres. We'll have lots more videos, exclusive audio clips, Zoom hangouts and special events for you soon. And it would really help us out if you would rate, review and subscribe to the podcast. Maybe tell someone else about it. Uh, Send them a link. Uh, That would be so, so helpful. Thank you so much. And now back to the podcast. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Our guest today is a writer, actor, comedian, and Emmy-nominated host. He has worked for The Onion, produced for The Daily Show, advised the Obama White House, what? And wrote the New York Times bestseller, How to Be Black. He's also the exec producer and host of two podcasts, How to Citizen with Baratunde, and We Are Having a Moment. Please welcome Baratunde Thurston! Yay! Yay! And might I add, guilty feminists, (laughs) thank you for having me. When I was doing this informal, unpaid advising uh, of the Obama White House, my primary mandate was to instruct this family on how to be weird. Uh, so <laughs> I can't tell you what I told them, uh, but it's be. working out pretty nice. It's working out pretty nice. <laughs> Did you see any eccentricity? Were you like just like hanging out with Michelle advising? 
it's like such a privileged place to be in. I'm like, yeah, I did. I got to visit the White House, not as a tourist on multiple occasions. But during the eight years that they were in office and the number of times I visited, I never saw them one time. What? Wow. Not one time. I never actually interacted with either of them. Whilst wow. Barack Obama was president, were you not invited to some special party at the end for helping though? No, no, I wasn't. Okay, they're off my no. Christmas card list. I did it for the country, not mm-hmm. for the. Oh, what a citizen! Not for the, what a citizen! Yeah. I mean, this is why. <laughs> but I will admit, I will accept at the very end as we were getting this countdown. Like I visited the White House a few months before the end. Yeah, I think we can just call it the end. Yeah, um, <laughs> the end of the world. Yeah, the end. <laughs> And uh, I thought maybe, maybe this will be, nah. it was, so it was actually a test of my ego um, <laughs> to be like, was I just doing this? So I could say I like shook the black president's hand while he was the black president and partially yes, yeah. but <laughs> that's like the realness. Um, but it was still so cool mm. to have worked with the quality of people. Like it's almost more powerful. I have to tell myself this, mm. uh, it's more powerful not to have interacted with them yeah. because I just got to work with the folks who worked there, mm-hmm. who like ran these different offices. I remember working with the U.S. Digital Service. It's this team of tech geeks that got recruited after Obamacare failed the first time yeah. out. Like, we don't oh, like to talk about God. that, but it was, yeah. it bombed. Yes. It bombed. Yeah. The website That's right. crashed. Yes. It was the most embarrassed, well, at the time, uh-huh. one of the most embarrassing yeah, things the White House In retrospect, fine. <laughs> it, yeah, it seems like a, like a massive competence leap over a high jump. But yeah. Absolutely, because they acknowledged the mistake yeah. and then worked rapidly to remediate it and fix it and get the services up and running. And we're not in that White House anymore. Mm. Uh, but it was really an honor to like hang out. I spent a whole day with the digital service team. Wow. And they actually didn't even work in the White House. They worked in a townhouse, like across the street from the White House. It was almost like a fraternity sorority house vibe. Yeah. There was pizza and whiteboards and post-it notes everywhere. And these were folks who could have been making a lot more money in Silicon Valley, mm. uh, slicing us up for advertising exploitation. And instead, they were trying to use their their tools for good, for the benefit of all of us. And. Wow. That was great. That's that was amazing. a great time. That's, I remember. I missed that time. Well, now I'm sad. Yeah. Well, let us <laughs> let us cheer you up because I feel like you definitely are going to meet the Obamas with the work that you're doing now. You know, as I said before, when I listen to your podcasts, I am motivated and I'm galvanized. Also, I just feel like you're showcasing the talent that can bring the change, which gives yeah. me hope because there's a lot of showcasing of incompetence now, and you're showcasing brilliant minds and compassionate minds. And, you know, often the most intelligent people aren't the most compassionate people. And, you know, the people that have been most highly educated have been educated towards the self and away from the community. Mostly, I'm really interested in hearing you and Susan have a conversation about various things. Uh, So I'm just going to kind of kick it off by um, saying that one of the things that comes out of the show again and again, for me, both of your shows, is that power is not just where we think it is or just where we've been told it is. And that uh, one of the most interesting things that I was listening to you talk about today uh, with one of your guests is that there's a lot of parasocial norms. There was an example on your show about what we think of as normal when we were born, What was how things worked mm. is how we think they should be, even if they're bad for us or even if they're 
crushingly bad for other people, we can't really reimagine them. So one example is, you know, if someone overdoses on drugs, what do you do? You call the police because it's an emergency and you do what you've seen other people do and you do what you've been told to do. And that's a social norm. And so, you know, when we say defund the police, we don't mean leave someone lying there. We mean send a more appropriate person, not an armed, uniformed member of the state who is there to demonstrate state violence. That's not mm-hmm. an appropriate person. Can the state send somebody else or can the community send someone else or a combination of the two? And the example that I thought was really powerful was it used to be that it was a social norm that the only people who could get married were a man and a woman. And it was not a politician standing up and going, hey, I, a powerful person, think we should change this. And it was not a brand standing up and going, hey, Pride, Nike and Accenture have decided we should change this. It was... (laughs) Thousands of conversations amongst real Mm -hmm. people who said, but I have someone in my family, but I know this person matters to me. Mm -hmm. And this social norm, yes, it's normal now, but it doesn't seem right. It seems hurtful. And Mm -hmm. I now want to live in a new sort of normal. And now it is normal in uh, many countries in the world, completely normal. And I I had to rewatch Reality Bites for something, which is only like 1994. And in that, there's a guy that comes out to his parents and his parents lock him out of the house, but it's played as if absolutely expected. What happens Mm. when you come out to your mom is she goes, oh my God, and she locks you out. And it was played as if that was completely a standard normal reaction. And that was the nineties. It's not that long ago. And so there's power in changing social norms. And it was the people who changed it, not without great effort, not without angst, not without tears, not without fear, not without all of those things. And even, you know, as far back as Stonewall violence, but it did change. So mm-hmm. that is such a powerful and impactful message to me that power is not just sitting in Westminster or sitting in the White House or wherever. The power lies in you and your community and everyone in your family and everyone in, like, in your street if you know how to galvanize it. So could you talk more about how you discovered this, Baratunde, yourself, and what's made you go from someone who is an entertainer into somebody mm-hmm. who is an activist at this time? Uh, Deborah, that was an incredible overview and piece of insight that you grabbed from this series. Thank you so much uh, for getting it and for feeling it so wonderfully. Mostly thank you for the low-key shade you tossed at Accenture. I don't get enough (laughs) anti-Accenture shade in my life. People don't even know what that is. And I'm like, yo, that's a deep cut. Right there. That is a deep cut hey, against the corporate the multinational department from time to time. So I used to work for the man who was the head of all gay globally for Accenture. Hello, Accenture. If you're listening, I love you. However, it is not down to you. Equal marriage. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> didn't start with you. Let's be incredibly honest. Yeah. And you would never have started it if it hadn't started. Of, of, of yes. So in terms of answering your question mm. about how I've learned this and what has been a part of my transformation from entertainment to activism. I was born into an activist household. So I actually think that came first. My mother was very much uh, someone leveraging whatever power she had, which wasn't a powerful electoral vote. As a resident of Washington, DC in the US, we have taxation without representation still in the capital city of the US. Uh, But I went to demonstrations with my mother. I went to community meetings with her. I organized parents with her at the predominantly white high school. We had a Parents of Black Students Association. 
She was in charge of the phone tree, but then she did what I guess Accenture might promote, subcontracting. Mm -hmm. And she assigned me the task of calling all the parents that were on her list. So I, I think I had a very early tangible taste of ways to connect with and influence other people. And it wasn't because we were sitting on a pile of money where we could write big checks. And, and it wasn't because we could vote many, many times. Like I couldn't vote because as a child, and like I said, she lived in DC. In so D the voting was limited. In DC, you can't vote? It's not that you can't vote. Uh, that, that's not accurate. What I mean is the District of Columbia sits in a like gray area where it's not a full state. Right. Uh. So it does not have representation in the US Senate right. or in the US Congress where those members can cast votes. Right. There is literally something called like a shadow senator wow. where it's kind of like model model UN or model Congress where you, you get the title without the privileges. And so being in that gray area also fired up a lot of us DC natives as far as paying attention mm -hmm. to what was happening kind of at the federal level. But it's, it's more of a minor detail. I think mostly it was growing up in my mother's house, which influenced my understanding. And then as we are putting this show together, much credit goes to my fiance, uh, Elizabeth, who the pandemic brought us a lot closer together than <laughs> <Yeah>. we expected. <laughs> uh, this is like the other human in my life in a physical sense. And she, you know, had just left her job in January of 2020. And it was not seemingly the greatest time to go out and shop for a new one. Mm -hmm. So we decided to kind of go in together on this show. And I'm definitely the host and voice of the show. And I've been trying to make this show for many, many years. But adding the power diagnostic and this understanding of it and even having a framework for what it means to citizen, that's a lot of her uh, as well. Mm -hmm. And as we prepare for each of these guests and as we come up with the actions that we give people to do with each episode, yeah. that's very collaborative uh, between the two of us. So I want to acknowledge you know, her contributions on, on that end. Um, I think the, to the specific point of power, I met this dude, Eric Liu, who was in our second episode where we do this deep dive. And he runs this institution called Citizen University. And he's been trying to make civics sexy again, <laughs> in his own words. And he is a person who we, Elizabeth and I both saw, like, oh, he talks about power in a different way. And we experience power mostly in our democracies as these rich people have it, these elected officials have it, Tim Downing or the White House have it, and we are subject to it, like serfs, like we never left that model in our minds. And it gives us easy scapegoats because we can blame yeah. other people, and it's very disempowering. And when we talk about democracy, and when we talk about civic engagement, rarely do we talk about power. Mm. And if we do, it's kind of dirty, or it's inaccessible, or both. Mm. And so Eric just laid it out way better than I ever could because he studied this for so long. We can generate this power, we can circulate it, we can share it, and there are many different ways of flexing it. Voting is a way, organizing physically is a way, spending money is a way, physical force is a way, ideas are a way, and norms, back to a point you started with, and we can change what is normal. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's, that's powerful. So it's, this show is great. I, I needed it for myself as a listener. And so it's really exciting to make it because like you said earlier, I, I feel very intelligent and very educated and very depressed by much of the media. Mm. And it's like, oh, this is a super entertaining and eloquent way to tell me how screwed I am. Mm -hmm. mm. I don't need more of that. Yeah. Mm. Uh, so I didn't want to contribute to that. Yeah. Yeah. The thing that I love most about your work is 
how pragmatic it is. Like, okay, we have this information. What are we going to do? How are we going to act? And I think that the thing that has felt very palpable um, during lockdown is people are going, okay, right, what do we do? What do we do now? But I personally, and not actually just me, a lot of my black friends, female, femme presenting, non-binary, felt a variety of things. The main one sort of being like, how to put it, is I'm tired. Or I've been screaming this. I've been screaming this. And I was one of many people who suddenly on Instagram got hundreds and hundreds of new followers because I was being tagged in all this stuff like black people that you should follow, follow her. And I'm like, I am. I mean, you've just heard me, you know, kiki and at the top of this, I'm a silly idiot, which I'm, I'm proud of. I'm also very intelligent and I know that. <laughs> but one of the things that I was having these conversations were like, okay, when we go to these protests, and you have, say, trans people of colour at these protests, are they protected? How are they protected? How do we look after women in our community? And the reasons for putting myself on the front line, which historically has come before me, the women before me, it's like, why should I keep doing that? You know, why should I put myself through that? It's not necessarily how I felt, but I completely, that chimed so hard And so a lot of the kind of information that's been around, but I'm talking very specifically this year, has felt also very white focused or non-black focused. Like these are the books that you should read. These are the things that you should listen to. And again, I was just like, it all feels, if we're not fighting white supremacy, we're helping white people and non-black people become really, you know, up to date. It all feels sort of focused outwards. So... In terms of, for instance, the first episode of um, How to Citizen and talk about revolutionary love, I feel like it chimes more with people who don't have somebody standing on their neck. Do you know what I mean? So in this very long-winded, I knew I told Deborah I had a lot to say, how do black people engage with revolutionary love, compassion, understanding? How do we grow? How do we gain knowledge? How do we stay pragmatic when we're tired? When we're scared to, you know, trans people of colour, non-binary people of colour, you know, it's not safe sometimes to go on a march or if you're not with, a, you know, a group like who are like you. That's a big question. What do black people yeah, do yeah, during yeah. this? <laughs> yeah, um, no, that. thank you for that. That's a, that's, a, that's a deep question. Fortunately, the answer is simple. Uh, we take naps. <laughs> <laughs> we just siestas. <laughs> early to so bed, late to rise. That the answer is shorter than the question, but there you go. Yeah, I'm trying. I'm trying that out. So many words have already been spoken in this world. Uh, naps. Take naps. My, yeah, my- it's easier than reparations. You know, it's like there's a lot of advantages to napping. Thank you, Susie, for that. That's a real question. And I think it's a paradox of systems of oppression that those who have been oppressed have to prioritize the experiences and the feelings of their oppressor in seeking our own liberation. Mm-hmm. And you're like, okay, so when, when, do, when is there time for me? <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. When do I get to get educated or play yeah. or sleep 
or not think about systems of oppression and how they intersect with, and can I not use the word intersectionality like ever again? Is that possible? <laughs> That'd be great. I don't even like the word. It doesn't roll off the tongue nicely. We could use a better branding for it. So what do, what do black people do? Um, a couple of things come to mind. One is, that is, I think, undersold is that we breathe. Mm. And we take a moment to acknowledge how amazing it is that we exist. Mm. Right. And we don't need a black president. Right. We don't need a Nelson Mandela. Like we don't need freedom. We're, we're here. Ooh. Any black person, a silly black person <laughs> who likes to chop it up on Zoom, a black person sitting on a stoop somewhere right now, a black person under a tree in West Africa right now is here. That is very much against the design Ugh. of the world order. Mm. And we're amazing because we exist. And that's worth a moment. Oh, sorry. <laughs> no, it's all right. I feel it too. I feel it too. This work is very, it is very hard. It is very draining. And um, I am not invincible. I am not an infinitely rechargeable Tesla battery of wisdom and patience mm. and mercy for those who have not been raised to extend those same things to me. And so I just cry. I take naps. I shadow box. <laughs> I garden. I cook. I go for very long walks in my neighborhood, in part to signal to the white people that I live here, but also... <laughs> you got to do that sort of, that once a week, daily. I am here. Exactly. No, it's like every day. I'm the, I'm, it's still me. So my hair has changed a lot. I haven't been to the barber in a while, so you might think I'm a different... So it's still me. Still me. I got a new backpack now. It's still me. Mm. What's up, James? Mm. So, <laughs> so, yeah, that's one of the biggest. My mother, I remember a, a scene. It's like, I call it a scene because it plays like a, a cinematic moment in my childhood. We had this parents of black students meeting at my private uh, secondary school, Sidwell Friends School in Washington, D.C., where the Obamas sent their daughters oh, cool. and the Clinton. And we did this, you know, it was a winter time. It's like Kwanzaa-ish time. It's holiday time. And my mother led this ceremony, like almost an Afro-shamanic ceremony. Yes. And got us all into a circle and had everybody hold hands. And it was parents and students, every shade of black, multiple. There's like very wealthy black people, very dependent on financial aid and like in this school by the skin of their wallets, black people and multiracial black people in between everything. And instead of talking about the agenda for the Kwanzaa celebration or the budget for whatever thing, she's like, I want everybody to hold hands, close your eyes and let's just picture ourselves in the bowels of a ship. Mm. We're crossing the Atlantic. And we are in the bowels of this slave ship. And let's just feel each other. Feel the spirits of those who allowed us to be here. And folks lost mm. it. Like the number of tears. We never get that. We never get the message of healing, mm -hmm. of patience, of 
naps of mental health resources. <clears throat> we get the exact opposite. You know, we're dealing with a case as we record right now, yet another case. There's always another case. There's always another body. Yeah. In this case, a man named Daniel Prude in Rochester, New York, who was suffering through a mental health episode. His brother calls 911 because it's normal to call 911 mm -hmm. when you need help with someone who's exhibiting a mental health incident and the police show up and end up murdering this young man. And that's a metaphor, you know, mm. for like millions of people. We're all struggling with and suffering from, and we're in this generation, multi-generational post-traumatic mm -hmm. stress. And it's diasporic. Yes. You know, it's not like we in America feel very special sometimes because that's our brand, mm -hmm. like America. Yeah. We're real special. We're real special. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but... We, you know, you mentioned Windrush earlier. We have the whole colonial existence and experience. Mm -hmm. You look at any of the strife that's happening on the mother continent of all humanity. Mm -hmm. And it's not just like, oh, these are just savage people who can't get it together. They don't know how uh -uh, to citizen. Uh -uh. No, 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 no. Uh -uh. Who drew the borders? Who took the resources? Thank who you. turned tribe against tribe and brother against sister? Like, that didn't just happen. Mm -hmm. Like, all people are capable of war. Mm -hmm. So I'm not saying, like, Europeans are uniquely predisposed to war yeah. but i am saying that this version of history that we're living in there is an imbalance of exploitation and pain mm. wielded against so many people from around the world yeah. and it's not a mystery you know yeah. it's actually the answer is just right there it's called history yeah. so that was a long answer um <laughs> It was a long question, to be honest. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> it was a thank very you. long question. I mean, my next question was kind of leading on from that, or was maybe meant to go before that. How are you? Uh, depends on, on the day. Uh, right now, I think I'm pretty good. Yeah. Uh, I woke up, went outside, and I saw these, like, kind of white snow on my car. And I'm like, it's not snowing. It's very hot. Mm. Oh, that's ash. California's on fire. Oh. That's literally ash just falling from the sky. Oh. So that part maybe not so great, <laughs> but uh, I'm doing okay and to good mm. in that I have found an overlap of my purpose. Okay. I'm making enough money to live comfortably in a pandemic. Okay. So cool. Yeah. <laughs> I, I've got love, you know, mm. great. My family that I've, as I'm aware of is healthy. Mm -hmm. Woo! Okay, we're doing good there. And I am hitting a stride creatively mm. of tapping into something raw or realer and deeper than I had before. And I thought I was doing okay before, but now I was like, oh, this is what it's like to just drop in even more. Yeah. So I'm doing good. I get tired. I get angry. I just get worn out. Mm -hmm. But that's also like, I don't know many humans that don't. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, either and so I don't you know want to get feeling too special about that. Oh, uh, it's my I tend to I want to ask how everyone is because thank you. Yeah, in the sort of time it's calmed down now, but in the time of kind of everybody tagging me as their favorite black to talk about stuff, <laughs> I just was like ah, I you know I'm a bit exhausted. And I remember you know here in the UK, John Boyega was in Hyde Park and he gave a big speech and everyone was like oh my god John Boyega's amazing and I remember feeling very angry and bitter because I was just like this guy 
he just yields a lightsaber. And I want mm-hmm. my Nigerian brother to just have a good time and buy a nice little house for his parents <laughs> in Peckham. And, and now he has to be this freedom fighter. And why does his activism have to be loud like this? Like, yeah. it, I just felt angry that it fell to him. And, you know, there was that picture of the black man carrying the white guy during one of the anti Black Lives Matter marches here in the UK and this strong black guy. And everyone was like, this is a symbolism of courage. And I was just like, I would not have picked that guy up. And I know, <laughs> I know that That's we're meant real. to, you know, love thy neighbor, but listen. Turn the other cheek, I et cetera, know, et cetera. I know et cetera. That, but when I saw that image, yeah. I was just like, it's everything I hate because it goes, yes, that is, you will serve us even when we have turned up today to protest yeah. against you. And so amongst all of that, I just am very conscious that we should always ask how we are. Well, thank you for, and look, I, I, um, you know, this is a show called the guilty feminist, mm-hmm. right? And I have as much as I preach um, from a super educated perspective around the race stuff, I'm still learning in the gender mm. um, universe yeah, yeah, <laughs> right? yeah. and, the, and the deep misogynistic history. But I keep finding, for me, finding, discovering, realizing these parallels. And you just like, when I think about, I, I talked previously about, you know, the oppressed having to prioritize the feelings of the oppressor. And where is that ever more present than a woman who stands by her man mm-hmm. <laughs> in the face of some incident, or I don't want to criticize my mm-hmm. boss who said this thing because I can't afford to make the guy feel bad for hurting mm-hmm. me because that's just going to hurt me more. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. So there's a universality to this too. And we're bound in this web. Uh, Martin Luther King Jr. said it a little more eloquently, mm-hmm. but this web of mutuality mm-hmm. ties us together. And we've got to find ways to see ourselves in each other and fight to free all of us because uh, we're all held captive by something. So I could literally go on for hours. That's why I've made a couple podcasts. Smart. Smart. I know you don't have much more time. Can I just ask you about something yeah. that I thought was really interesting Ooh. on your podcast? You were talking about power justifying itself and telling yeah. us why it should have power. So the stories from the powerful will always be why they are the most appropriate people. And I really like that even when you're two men on the podcast, you often will reference the intersection of maleness. And you were talking about how there are always storylines from the powerful for why people who are not white and male just aren't cut out for it. And that those storylines will be propagated. And then that's the story we hear, because, of course, if someone's hoarding power, they need to tell a story. And I'm very interested in story as a storyteller. What do you think the power of story is and uh, Mm. the heft of story, I should say, the heft of story and the story of the powerful? So uh, Eric Liu shared this wisdom with us in terms of kind of laws of power and one of them was that power justifies itself and once you've got it then you tell yourself a story that justifies why you have it and others don't so you can see this in military service oh only only men can be soldiers because we're stronger and we or women aren't good at math because men have all the positions leading all the math departments so there must be something about women's brains that make them less capable 
uh, at this thing. Or, well, the reason that the current world order is dominated by Western white European-ness is because it's just the global South doesn't have the education or the sophistication. They, they didn't build the corporate structures that we did. And therefore, they didn't earn the dominance over the world. And so it's willed by God or science or both. But we justify dominance by the dominant. Uh -huh. <laughs> and if you're not dominant, then it's because you don't have what it takes. And so that infect, that story infects both those who have this power and those who don't, mm. right? Because those who don't, we tell ourselves, well, this, I guess I wasn't born light-skinned or with mm -hmm. this hair or in this body. Therefore, maybe I'm not. I didn't grow up in this rich part of town, so maybe I don't deserve. Mm -hmm. I don't have the right accent, so I don't want to even try. And then those who have non-laboriously uh, inherited this power say, well, I, just, I must have what it takes. I'm just naturally gifted. Yes. You know? Yeah. Thank God. And, you see, and then there's a proud embrace right now. The unabashedly, unashamedly white supremacist movement, mm -hmm. the white male chauvinist movement is out of the closet. Yeah. We are proud of suppressing all these people. We clearly had something they did it. Yeah. That's the proud boys named themselves yeah. that. Yeah. In this mythological story. Mm. Mm -hmm. So to your final question of the power of story, that's all there is. Yeah. There's mostly stories. There is, like I majored in philosophy in college. I think there is something called objective reality, but I think most of us don't access it on a regular basis. Our experience of truth and the world is mediated by someone else's story. It's a radio program, it's a TV show, it's a nursery rhyme, it's a, mm -hmm. it's a norm inherited from our parents mm -hmm. or our pastors, but it's just a big game of telephone. Yeah. So we are trapped in a story. And the challenge of that is like, wow, this is a very powerful story. Mm -hmm. And it's infected so many of mm -hmm. us. But it's, the power is also, it's just a story. Yeah. We could write something different. We could Photoshop this. We could final draft this. We could edit this in Google Docs mm -hmm. or something and come up with some different language, some different uh, phrases and some different plot points and characters mm -hmm. for how this story plays out. And so that's, that keeps me going. Yeah. How hopeful are you that this current changing of shift in the narrative in America and by extension globally and the attendant issues with the pandemic and the questions that's bringing up, how hopeful are you that this story can change and how frightened are you that there'll be a pushback from the patriarchy? So the story's gonna change. Mm -hmm. How fast, how violently is one of the questions or two of the questions. There is such pent up frustration, anger, rage. Look at the children of the world. Mm -hmm. They're trying to help us tell a better and different story. Wow. Yeah. They're trying to get us to tell a story of regenerative agriculture mm -hmm. and clean air and pristine waters and recycled everything. And those of us who've inherited this old story and are hyper-invested in it because we've had some power, ah, oh, these kids are crazy. Yeah. They're right. They will be proven yeah. right eventually, whether it's because everything's on fire mm -hmm and we're forced to rebuild and regrow from ashes, or whether it's something more peaceful and beautiful and planned out and we migrate the story. So it's gonna, I have absolute faith that the story is gonna change. I don't know what's happening in the next few months. We have some mm. key 
plot points, some pivot points ahead with the U.S. election, which is not just about no. the U.S., of course. We have an outsized influence in the story mm -hmm. of the world. So as go we, so many others too. And we throw off global balance as well with how we show up or don't. Hello, NATO partners. Sorry about that. <laughs> so I know the story is going to change. I hope it will change with relative peace. Yeah. And the backlash will be there. It already is there. We are living in it. You got Bojo because of a backlash. Mm -hmm. We got this dude because of a backlash. And that's going to ratchet up even further. I'm also hopeful that we can get some leadership from ourselves and those with more formal elected power to try to bind us together in a bigger story that allows for the people who are suffering too. It's very hard for me to say this. It's very hard for me to say this, but Valerie Cower said this in our first mm -hmm. episode, there are no monsters in this world. There are just broken people, yeah. <laughs> you know, essentially that's a paraphrase. And so all these people lashing out and backlashing, their reality, their story has been upended. Mm. They've been promised this thing and it was a lie. Yeah. And you wake up one day and you find out your daddy's not your daddy, right? You find out you're not who you thought you were, that your God is not your God. That is violent. Yeah. And so it is a rending experience for them. And I have some empathy for mm -hmm. it. Doesn't excuse a lot of things, but it explains it. So I am hopeful that we get better storytellers that can include everyone hurting in a, to a bigger story where we can all have a bit more joy, <laughs> a bit more love, um, and see a bit of promise for all of us and less of this like zero sum nonsense. I loved what Valerie said about asking, especially if you're an ally of, instead of just burning the bridge as an ally, asking the other person, how are you misunderstood? And what are you most afraid of if your worldview fails? Yeah. And I'm really interested in like meeting a men's rights activist and talking about that and saying like, I'll take on, some men's rights activists have some points that I absolutely hear and agree with. Mm -hmm. I want to say, if I can take on one of your points, can you take on one of mine and can we, can we fight for each other? Because I reckon I could win some of them over. I really do. You're so fascinating though. Please, can you come back another time? Um, I would love to. Yes. I really <laughs> want to do a two-parter on this because I feel like we're just yeah. getting started. But you have to go. But yeah. like everyone just needs to listen to your podcast. I feel like most of the things I'm going to ask you, you've already talked about on your own podcast anyway. So if everyone who listens to this would listen to every podcast, there's not that many episodes. How many episodes are there of We're Having a Moment? We're Having a Moment is a six episode mini series that we wrapped for the summer of pandemic revolution. Mm -hmm. And then How to Citizen with Baratunde is an ongoing project. We are about to release our fourth episode. I'm not sure the gap between our recordings and your releases, but mm -hmm. at the time of our recording... We have three up, and in our fourth episode, we'll be speaking with Jose Andres, the global world-saving chef, uh, about many things. So that's right. going to be dropping every so week for as long like as we can. That's like so few episodes to listen to. Each and every one is yeah. old, and there's so many brand new ideas in there that I've never heard before that will yeah. motivate you, that will inspire you. If you like The Guilty Feminist, you must, in fact, I'm going to say you must listen, otherwise you're not allowed back to The Guilty Feminist. Yeah, If for you real. don't start listening to Baratunde in- You have to get it's, out. It's now Deborah, a set text, like a Susan, college class. It's a Boomy, set task. Thank you for having <laughs> me. And, and I'll, I'll, I know sure. I said I have to go. I'm literally late for like another streaming show. Okay, but this is, oh, God, but, but uh, I am an activist, but- <laughs> Nice! Uh, yeah! I, you know, I, I have a lot of stances about how we need to defund the police and we shouldn't be calling the cops and everything. But every time I see a police officer, I get so friendly. And I'm just like, hey, officer, how you doing? How you doing? 
going. And I, it's like I, I've been trained from such a young age to like overly comport, contort myself in a generous manner. And I think in this era, to be like a black dude walking this neighborhood in, in Los Angeles and smiling and waving, I am making these police officers day. There is there very few... There are very few black men out there just giving a Ned Flanders level, yokily dokily, you know, but I just ham it up. <laughs> so thank you, thank you, thank you. I'm going to get Tom this audio. You are a, you are a man amongst men and it's just been absolutely joy. And please, 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 please come back. You were just so wonderful. Will thank you for do. spending time. And sorry we ran over, but we love you. Thank That's you right. so love much. You too. Thank, you, thank you. Bye. Okay. Bye. 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 Lovely folks of the Guilty Feminists, please welcome Deborah Francis White! This is the story of the first time I citizened, using citizen as a verb, as Baritone Day Thurston is now making popular. This is about my civic awakening, if you like, which I had as a teenager a long time before I had my sexual awakening because I was in a weird culty religion, which is a story for another day. <laughs> now, my headmistress at my secondary school, my high school, had a sign outside the front of her door that read, before you speak, ask yourself, is it kind? Is it true? Is it necessary? (laughs) And I remember my best friend Philippa and I agreeing that this was a ridiculous criteria and that we would never say anything if we lived by her checklist. We would be completely silent if everything had to be true, kind and necessary. She had another sign that read, Never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, it is the only thing that ever has Margaret Mead. And I didn't think about that much at the time. I figured it was like one of those platitudes headmistress has made, like dance like nobody's watching, even when people are. <laughs> Why would you do that? When, when, when you're 14, your chances of being mocked while dancing are high, high, very high. And I was 14 years of age when I was in grade 10. Now, people who stayed on for years 11 and 12 were usually doing it to prep for university or college. So a lot of people dropped out at year 10. And so year 11 and 12, you took fewer subjects, but you chose them all yourself. Now, I had taken music to year 10 and I wanted to take it again in years 11 and 12. But when we got the form, it wasn't there. It just wasn't an option. So my best friend, Philippa, and I went to the headmistress and said, there must be some mistake. Music isn't being offered and we've taken it this far. And she said, due to only a small group of students taking music in year 10 and therefore fewer in year 11 and 12, it wouldn't be offered because our arts funding budget had been cut. In fact, they decided it wasn't worth employing a music teacher at our school at all. And the whole music program for everyone, even the young ones, the 12 year olds, was going to be cut. There was no more music at our school. But we really wanted to take music. So Philippa and I went away and did a report on why music was important for teenagers. And we found evidence that students who played an instrument were better at maths because it cultivated the same neural pathways for patterning in the brain. Now, Miss Pritchard, our headmistress, knew that this was a crock of shit because neither Philippa nor I cared about maths. And we had deliberately taken the opt-out maths subject called social maths, which was basically how to count your chains to make sure you weren't being ripped off at Sainsbury's. So uh, Miss Pritchard wasn't buying it. So we came back again and we asked her a question. And the question was, what would it take for us to have a music class next year? And this is something that I learned about citizening. You have to ask the power base 
under what circumstances would you give us what we wanted? Mm. So we said to her, what would shift it? And she said, we'd need to find 12 students who wanted to take the elective, knowing that we didn't have anything like that in the bank. So now we had to go out and convince other students (laughs) that they wanted to take music. So we had about six who wanted to take it. So we needed to campaign and we had to explain to other students why music was fun, why music was a subject they were going to look forward to. Why take geography? We take music. Go and play a tune. You're going to learn about music. What what music do you love? Hip hop. That'll be covered. We promised them (laughs) blithely, not at all knowing what the curriculum would be. We had to tell them what the advantages were. We had to campaign like we were campaigning for an election. So we managed one by one to convince students that they desperately wanted to take music and we had them signed up and we finally had 11. We needed one more. And I realized there was a new boy in our year who just joined at the end of the year, end of year 10. And uh, so he didn't really have any friends yet. And we told him that there was a, this was a small class and so far it was all girls and he'd be the only boy. And that upped his chances of getting a girlfriend significantly. Mm, I mm. mean, of course, if you're the only boy... You flirt up, no other boys to compete with. I'm a feminist, but we pitched that music class as a meat market and Martin was sold. (laughs) Then we went back to Miss Pritchard and said, Miss Pritchard, we've got 12 students. She was not expecting this. And she said she'd done the sums and she still couldn't afford to justify hiring a teacher for just 12 students. So we said we weren't leaving her office or we'd just sit outside it until she'd committed to hiring a music teacher. And she said then we'd be sitting outside her office a long time because we weren't getting one. And normally sitting outside the headmistress's office was a punishment. So it felt like the joke was on us. So I turned around and I looked at her sign and I read it out loud to her. Never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, Miss Pritchard. It is the only thing that ever has. That's your sign. And dance like nobody's watching, Miss Pritchard. Chick, mate, Miss Pritchard, you have your own sign to blame. Now watch me dance like nobody's watching. (laughs) Miss Pritchard sighed and said for 12 students, she could only provide three of the six contact class hours a week. The rest of the time, we'd have to study on our own, but we would have a music class. She told us she could only afford to buy half a teacher. We said, deal, we accept. We accept half a teacher. (laughs) The next year, year 11, a 23-year-old teacher called Leighton Gilmore, Mr. Gilmore, turned up. He was on his first year out of teaching college, so I guess he was cheap. (laughs) He was very cute, and we all had a massive crush on him. He taught us for six hours a week, because once he was there in the school, the headmistress found a way. I I guess she just was like, I don't want you sitting around half a week. He's fit, yeah. (laughs) We could not have imagined a more handsome outcome for our music class sitting. And that was my civic awakening, the time I realised that you can influence the people making the decisions. And if you do that, you are one of the people making the decisions. That influences power to move things and that a small group of thoughtful citizens can change the world. And maybe it is the only thing that ever has or ever will. That and one teenage boy looking to get laid. Yes. <laughs> Can't believe that's a story oh, I have never told on the podcast. There's always another one deep There's down in there. Always another one. Always um, another one. Brilliant. And now 
please welcome Boomy Thomas to the mic. Wow, that was sensational, Deborah. (laughs) (laughs) Truly. And um, Susan, what you said, um, it's still resonating with me around citizenship because there's parallels between our stories. The reason why I was rejected was because I wasn't naturalized. So that was the consequence. Ah. And even though I had moved to Nigeria with my family when I was really young, the whole time I was there, I didn't speak with a Nigerian accent. You were always the outsider. Yeah. So it was almost like a matter of time until the return. Yeah. And so no matter where you are, you don't fit in because you're something else. Yeah. Or sort of, I don't know, the sum total of all these different experiences. Yeah. But you are Nigerian. And for me, I was told that I was Glaswegian as well. And yeah. um, it was really, really emotional for me going back to Scotland a couple of weeks ago. Mm. After the whole ordeal and I had gone the indefinite leave to remain and it's like, oh, I'm safe. Yeah. And I had to go because uh, I was playing at Edinburgh International Book Fest and yeah. going to Edinburgh was like bliss, joy. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. I'm here. Yeah. But on the coach up to Glasgow, my heart was literally in my throat. I was so mm. scared because it was like, what if I imagined it to be this fantasy? Or what if the Scots don't accept me? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And this whole sense of like rejection and trauma and healing oh. and then the, the power of nature and sort of centering yourself in the soil of remembrance. Yeah. I'm understanding the power and the enigma of arrival. And it is so, so intense again. And then going into like the power of words when we're talking about directing your narrative or mm. telling your story in a way that is correct, mm. that your representation is true and also acknowledging the fragility of being and how words are so powerful and so potent in shaping intergenerational kind of portraits mm, of mm. our soul or our essence, um, mm. our culture and the role that we have to play or we, ha- we have access to playing mm. in the evolution of it. So I speak of this and um, again, it leads into the EP Broken Silence, where the song I'm playing today is called Fire, which is exactly about that, the heat that Mm. we generate and the heat that is caused by misunderstanding or by carelessness, Mm. carelessness of intents with historical ramifications. I'm just going to go into the song. So, (laughs) um, thank you. the power of life and death. The soothing tongue is the tree of life, but the perverse tongue crushes the spirit. Be careful what you say, words they have power. Break our bones, but words can break our 
want what you want, what you get or get what you want. Words once spoken can be undone. No, no. Don't speak at all, at all, anyhow. Don't speak at all, anyhow. Don't play with fire, with fire, cause you'll get burned. Song. Thank you, Deborah. Thank you, Susan. Yay. Thank you, Tom. Um, Thank you, Baba Tunde. And Harrison <laughs> Day is amazing, and you are amazing. What what amazing it's people we've had on tonight? I know. Do you have anything to plug, Susie Bakima? Oh yes, uh, plug plug plug. I um, am in a film called Enola Holmes on Netflix on the twenty third of September. There for you to watch. It's got Millie Bobby Brown and Henry Cavill and Sam Claflin and Helena Bonham Carter, and it's really good fun. Um, based on YA books about Sherlock Holmes's little sister. And then um, I'm in a show on Amazon called Truth Seekers, which is Simon Pegg and Nick Frost's new show. Very it's fancy. It's going to be out later this year. Woo, woo, woo. Check you out. Check uh, me out. Boomy Thomas, where can we listen to your music? I'm on Spotify, Tidal, um, iTunes, or Apple Music, just on all the major digital platforms follow Boomy Thomas um, and check out her yeah. amazing music yes great yay awesome. oh and we're at the podcast festival the London podcast festival on what date Tom Selinski 26th of September uh, you, all of the tickets uh, for you to come and see us live are gone because okay. you know social distancing and all that but you can join us online live so get in there and do that check it out on our website guiltyfeminist.com or at King's Place you have been listening to The Guilty Feminist with me, Deborah Francis-White, guest co-host Susan McComa, and our very special guest, Baratunde Thurston, with music from Boomy Thomas. The Guilty Feminist theme tune was composed by Mark Hodge and produced by Nick Sheldon. The producer was Tom Selinski for The Spontaneity Shop. Thanks to Rachel Craft, Virginia DCO, and everyone who made this episode happen, as well as all of you for listening. For more information about this and other episodes, visit guiltyfeminist.com! Yeah, it's sort of breaking yes. up a little bit. It's breaking up, but you're recording at your end, aren't you? I am recording on my end. Yeah, so we yeah. should. It should. Okay, be okay. it should be okay. I, I got. I got the gist. So I'll. Mm. I'll edit. Uh, this. This. This part in. So, Boomy, you got your... Oh, sorry, what were you going to say, Barton? It sounded like... It was a little choppy for me, but it sounded like Boomy is your new prime minister. Is that what has happened? Yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's the gist. That's how it works. A huge thank you to all of our amazing patrons sponsoring us at the Smash the Patriarchy level or above. John Quilcoy, Sarah Brown and Sarah Boom.